Now it is my great pleasure to introduce our moderator for tonight's discussion. Simon Romero is a national correspondent for the New York Times based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was previously the Brazil bureau chief for the Times, covering Brazil and other parts of South America. He has written extensively on a broad range of issues, including Brazil's political upheaval, river pirates in the Amazon rainforest, Paraguay's guerrilla insurgency, and the shifting politics of Antarctica. He was also the New York Times Andean Bureau Chief until 2011, based in Caracas, Venezuela, where he covered issues including President Hugo Chavez's political movement, Colombia's long internal war, and indigenous politics in Bolivia. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Simon Romero. Sarah, thank you so much for the, for the very kind um, introduction, and I'm just gonna move on right now and introduce uh, this wonderful panel that I, I have the, the pleasure of moderating. Uh, we have Cecilia Bailly, who is a journalist and cultural anthropologist and a writer at large at Texas Monthly. Her work focuses on the U.S.-Mexico border and the history and culture of South Texas. And her writing has also appeared in Harper's Magazine and the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Angela Cocherga is a multimedia journalist who has covered the U.S.-Mexico border and, the Mexico, and Mexico's interior for television, newspapers, and radio, and was Mexico border chief for a major broadcasting group. She is currently the Southern New Mexico border reporter for the Albuquerque Journal and a special contributor for public radio and television. And Alfredo Corchado is the, the Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News, where he has covered U.S.-Mexico issues since 1993. He has also reported for the El Paso Herald Post and the Wall Street Journal and is the author of Homelands and Midnight in Mexico. <laughs> So just uh, diving right in, I uh, want to ask you a question, Cecilia, about, uh, uh, about the place that you come from and the connection that it has for you, because I think that we, you and I share something in that we're both descendants of people who arrived a long time ago in, now, in what is now Texas and the U.S. Southwest. And in fact, your family used to control what is now known as Padre Island in South Texas. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how that influences your, your writing, your coverage of, of the U.S.-Mexico border. Sure. Uh, we don't have any of that land. I don't even own a condominium on Padre Island, unfortunately. <laughs> There's a long history of dispossession of, of lands held by uh, Mexicans who became Mexican-American citizens after the Mexican War. But on my mother and father's side, the Baez and Hinojosas are families that uh, came to the area in the 1700s, in the middle of the 18th century, and were part of these initial settlements that emerged along the Rio Grande. The river was a source of, of water, of sustenance of life, and these communities emerged that eventually were on, on either side of the river. Uh, eventually, when the river became our border after the U.S.-Mexican War, the families ended up on either side. Um, and so I only have one grandmother who is from Jalisco, Mexico, who's from the interior, but my other three grandparents are all from this region. I don't 
have a lot of family in the interior of Mexico or the U.S. People don't know my last name in either country. Uh, so really, I'm from the border. It's a place that feels like home, and uh, it doesn't feel uh, like, a, like the edge of anything. It feels like the center yeah, of this long story, this long history of us being there. Uh, we'll be discussing today how that's mm -hmm. changed, but uh, for me, I grew up just with a strong sense of rootedness in this place that is now under so much dispute. Mm -hmm. And a Angela, you, you grew up on both sides of the border, um, and so can, you, know, you have that, that ability to, to move between both worlds in a way. Um, how did that influence you into moving into journalism and eventually working on the border itself? Well, I, um, I'm grateful to my mother because she did raise me on both sides of the border. I was born in Mexico City, raised in Guadalajara, and then the 10 years old, um, moved back to the U.S. My mother's from the United States and actually moved to the same place where Cecilia grew up, the Rio Grande Valley. And as a 10-year-old, it was a kind of a confusing place. You're on the border where I see a lot of people look Mexican to me, but don't speak Spanish. And then I had to understand this very um, unique language uh, of Spanglish and kind of try to understand that. But over time, it really, the border is the only place I feel truly at home. It's a place where I, I and many people move back and forth seamlessly. And I'm not talking about the infrastructure, but the bilingual, bicultural, binational nature of the border, um, I feel I'm very fortunate to, to have that experience. And it's shaped who I am and also really helped inform all of my reporting. Mm -hmm. I've tried to serve as a, a bridge of understanding. And um, it's a place that I like to say is, you know, we don't have to think of ourselves as either or, but more. And so, love the border. Um. Alfredo, t tell us a little bit about um, El Paso's history, and it's especially its, its history of welcoming immigrants from all over the place and, and really kind of functioning as a kind of Ellis Island for, for that part of the United States. Um, how did that come about? How did that emerge? Um, I, uh, I, I was actually born in, in, in Mexico, in, mm -hmm. in Durango, Mexico, and my father was a uh, Abracero, and as a kid, I mean, that's, that's all my father talked about, was someday moving us to the United States, which was, in many ways, uh, the saddest conversations we would have, because uh, none of us, not my brothers, my mother, none of us wanted to come north. Uh, and we, we came because of the Landmark uh, Immigration Nationality Act, by, uh, signed by Lyndon B. Johnson, President Johnson, in 65. So I remember, you know, uh, coming to Ciudad Juarez, waiting for our, our legal uh, permanent green cards, and just staring at the, uh, at the mountains, uh, the Franklin Mountains, and seeing the big star. And we, we came, uh, it was the, the Christmas season, and so it was this thing of, you know, uh, that's where we want to go, that's where they're forcing us to go. Um, and it felt very much like, uh, I mean, in retrospect, now looking back, I mean, we came through El Paso, we came through a neighborhood known as Chihuahuita, which to, I, I would say, millions of, of, of immigrants, uh, especially Mexican-Americans, that was our Ellis Island in the Southwest. And we came through there uh, on the way to California, Central, Central Valley, 
but I remember my mother as a, as a kid that would never really buy like sheets for of bed or towels or anything. I mean, she would put all her money uh, and, and, and sort of look forward to moving back to the border. I mean, to us, the border at that time was like a, like a holy land in a way. It was like a, a, the annual pilgrimage where we go back to El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. Um, and, and, you know, it was always counting the days that someday we would, we would make the permanent move. But I think as a journalist, as, as Angela said, I, mean, I was very much influenced by, uh, inspired by Ruben Salazar, who later became a, a correspondent in, at the LA Times, uh, by this notion that you can actually understand both sides and somehow bring both sides to, to the reader uh, through journalism. Um, and I mean, even today, I don't think I feel complete as a person or as a journalist if I'm not reporting from both sides of the border. Hmm. Uh, that's, you know, that's the ultimate, I think, feeling. When you, when you know that you can crisscross and, and, and hopefully uh, try, to, uh, try to make uh, Americans understand and Mexicans understand you know, what, what it is to, to be binational, bilingual, bicultural. Mm -hmm. um, I think as, as all of us here in this, this room know, it's been a, a very eventful year on the on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, we've all been covering issues like family separation, um, the imprisonment of migrant children on their own in, in certain facilities, and uh, of course the, the rather shocking, uh, shattering massacre in El Paso that took place in, in August when a, a gunman went into the Walmart there and, and targeted people because of their ethnicity. Um, how did that ref reflect, Angela, when, when it compares with the, the other coverage you've done of, of difficult events on the border? What made, what's made this year stand out in a different way for you? Well, it's been, it, these have been some dark days on the border, especially in El Paso, for all of the reasons you said. Um, the shooting really um, stunned people, and, and it was very clear very quickly once the alleged gunman was taken into custody that El Paso, we were, were chosen for the attack because of who we are and where we live. And so that every mass shooting is horrible in its own way, but that one in particular um, hit so close to home. I cover so much violence in Juarez, drug violence, which uh, unfortunately is spiking again. And, that's been heartbreaking, but I think the thing that was stunning to so many people is that it did happen in this everyday place where so many people from both sides of the border were doing just normal back-to-school shopping. And so I think that that combined with all the other heartbreaking stories, it's been tough. But I've mm -hmm. also been inspired by, by the resilience of border residents on both sides, especially El Paso, setting a real example, and also, um, this idea that of tolerance um, of people really that's a place of tolerance and, mm -hmm. and so there are things we can learn from from the El Paso experience. Um, Cecilia the, the, the border plays such a huge kind of it, it occupies such a big place in the public imagination mm -hmm. and especially in in policy making right now um, there's so much anti-immigration rhetoric uh, the border is portrayed as this as this incredibly dangerous place, and and of course uh, there is uh, 
there have been calls to build more of a wall and barriers along the border. Um, what does that feel like in South Texas these days? Is what, what's, the, what's the reaction to the wall and possibly a portion of private wall mm -hmm. coming to South Texas? Well, we already have a good bit of border fencing uh, that was built in 2008 to 2010. And back then, the communities along South Texas were, were highly opposed to the wall. Uh, we were calling it a fence back then. Now we're just all openly admitting that, that the function of it is, is more of a wall. Um, I, there's a researcher in Texas who said he has uh, done data crunching that shows that there's a perfect uh, relationship between how close you are to the border and whether you support the wall. Um, so we know that the wall is symbolic, that uh, people want it the further they are away from the border, the more they want it. That's not to say the border residents don't want different kinds of enforcement, but, but the wall itself is sort of the, the epitome, the climax of all the political theater. Mm -hmm. And I think people in South Texas um, are tired of that, and they know that it's a place where people come, politicians come for photo ops, and uh, then they leave, and, and their folks are not investing in the region, and the communities are having to step in and provide, in these difficult moments, provide for migrant families because the governments are not doing that. Uh, but I would say that, that there's been a buildup of this um, in the past 20, 30 years and really throughout history. Like this is this explosion of a number of trends that we've been living through on the border. And uh, the border, the thickening of the border, as I call it, the buildup of border enforcement uh, began a long time ago. But in the 1990s, we started you know, uh, having this deterrent strategy that focused border agents in particular cities and then under President uh, Bush, George W. Bush, the, the wall was approved, but then it was built under President Obama. Uh, I don't live there anymore, but I spend a lot of time there. We have been used to just being subjected to more and more uh, stops and searches on the U.S. side, even if you never cross to the Mexican side. Um, it's, uh, the last thing I'll say about that is that I think since after 9-11, you know, the, the stakes were raised when people started talking about the border differently mm -hmm. and using the term border security, uh, which correlated with national security. And so the implication was that the threat to the country was at the border. And so I see a lot of change even during that time. And I think we have to be very attentive to the language that we use because it was changing into that language of border security that now just you know, both political parties kind of take for granted that uh, there's some kind of persistent threat that needs to be addressed mm -hmm. on the border. So. Um, I want to ask a, a question, Alfredo, about Ciudad Juarez and, and El Paso. And I, I, I was recently in Juarez in downtown, in the downtown part of the city, and there was a band there that was playing of all things, Credence Clearwater Revival <laughs> cover song in English and doing it fantastically well. And I was like, whoa. Uh, where else but, but in a border city are you going to find that? In uh, Mexico City. In Mexico City, okay. <laughs> you know, are they big Credence fans? Yeah, too? Huge, they are, yeah. Huge fans. yeah. yeah. Um, t so tell us a little bit about sort of the cultural life between, between these two cities. Where, where is sort of like the center of vibrancy? Is it more in Juarez, more in El Paso? Is there, is there some type of like cross-pollination going on between, 
between artists, between singers, between people on both sides? Well, I, mean, I think it's really along the U.S.-Mexico border, but specifically in Ciudad Juarez, uh, El Paso. I mean, obviously, there's this, there's this history there, you know, the, uh, the binationality, uh, you know, Juan Gabriel plays, plays a huge role. Uh, Juan Gabriel, actually, the last hit he had was the Credence Clearwater song. Uh, in Spanish, uh, really? In Spanish. Uh, I forget the name. Uh, uh, Great song. The rain. La, la, la lluvia. <laughs> It'll come back to me. But, mm -hmm. but that's, I mean, that, that kind of explains the, 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 the biculture part of it. Uh, there's also, it, it's an area, for example, in South Texas uh, where the accordion music, uh, mariachis, you know, it's, it's being taught at, uh, in, at high schools and, and, and colleges, and it just kind of makes people feel a sense of, uh, you know, your confidence. You're, you're confident about, about belonging on, on both sides of the board. That, that kind of helps uh, that, that side of you. I mean, when, when we lived in, in California, um, my mother would say, we want to go to El Paso because it was a place where people wore ties. Where we grew up in the San Joaquin Valley, and it was usually people working in the fields. But I think years later, I, I really understood that to be, you know, people can be themselves. They can really claim both sides of the border. And as Angela said, uh, you don't feel like you have to choose one side or the other. Uh, and that goes with, with music or, and, and food and, 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 you know, drinks. Um, and Angela, you mentioned uh, when you were growing up that you had to decipher this new language called Spanglish, um, which, which I think, you know, it's experienced a huge amount of growth and evolution. I mean, you walk around the streets of LA and it's fantastic, <laughs> the, the Spanglish that you hear all the, all the time. Uh, what, what, what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis for you work-wise? Do you do, you know, interviews in English, in Spanish, Spanglish? Do you know when to mix and when, when not to? Yeah, really, really both, and um, and of course it's frowned on. And if you're in Mexico City, people don't want to hear Spanglish necessarily. But but it's now. I mean, I really think the border is a state of mind, and well beyond the border, we're seeing a lot of this blending of of cultures and languages across the U.S. And I like to look at the border um, as kind of a peek into the future. It, it's young, uh, majority um, Latino, Mexican American, American Mexican, and so. These are communities that reflect the future, and I know that can be confusing and even f create fear for a lot of people away from the border. But I think we've learned something in this blending of, of cultures and the economy, the, you know, the economy, we depend on each other, especially on the U.S. side, we depend heavily on Mexico. Um, we depend, we're family ties, we have, um, you know, all sorts of ties that bind, and we don't, you know, we don't always get along or, or even like each other, but we learned something a long time ago that is critical. We need each other. Mm. And so that, that's something that on the border, I think we need to, to learn beyond the border and, and just accept that fact and stop fighting about it and figure out a way to, to make, make this, this new reality work because mm -hmm. it's here. It's not, this, you, you can't turn back time. I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, it, I mean, if I can jump in, I mean, it's like uh, what San Diego and Tijuana went through uh, when at the height of the violence, uh, San Diego was going to turn its back on, on Tijuana and, and later realized that, you know, economically, I mean, the dependency is much better. All along the, the U.S.-Mexico border, the Mexican cities are larger, I mean, economically more vibrant. So 
you now have Tijuana, San Diego as the Calibaja region, you know, and it's, it's a symbol of we, I mean, we need each other. We, we need to work this out together. Uh, it's, a, it's a vibrant, but what happened in Tijuana was interesting because Tijuana said, we have to kind of reinvent ourselves. We can't just depend on, on, on the gringos coming down. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, you know, they got into the culture, they got into uh, the wine industry, the food. the food industry, and it's become a much, much more vibrant region. I think a, a lot of other border communities have much to learn from that. You know, Ciudad Juarez, El Paso, you, you think of the border as a, really one big community where a borderline was imposed. But at the end of the day, you know, you talk about walls, you talk about fences, but we're really the same people. We're, mm -hmm. we're one community. Uh, you go back and forth, you know, all the time. I mean, um, you don't talk about, we want to go to Mexico, we want to go to the United States. It's almost al otro lado, mm -hmm. or este right. lado, you know. Right. Um, one fact of life related to that is for people who live on the border or even I think as much as a hundred miles from the border is our checkpoints and the just the it, it, it almost becomes something natural right you you have to stop and you ha and you know declare your citizenship and you're you're gazed at by a border patrol officer and they determine whether you're a, a risk or not um, what is that? You know, do, do you think that the rest of the country, Cecilia, has a has a, a grasp on what that, on you know, just what that means on a day-to-day -day basis to be viewed by really your own government as, you know, someone who's not entirely trustworthy, perhaps. Yeah. No, I don't think the rest of the country mm -hmm. um, can imagine what that's like on a day-to-day -day basis, and I don't think the rest of the country would be okay with that happening in New York or. You know, really, almost any other part of the country. Uh, we do have these interior checkpoints. They've been there, I think, since the 1970s, maybe. Um, and if you grew up crossing the border, uh, the border itself, like I did to visit my grandmother on the Mexican side, every time you come back in, you're questioned by the customs officer. Uh, we were kids, and they would try to check to see if you were lying, and so you would say, you'd. We didn't have to show our passports back then, but you'd pull up and say, U.S. citizen, before they even asked. And then they would say, where do you live? And you had to tell them what street, and what school do you go to, you know? I've been doing a research study recently on Latino voters and non-voters throughout Texas. And um, I think that when you're subjected to that kind of constant questioning of whether, of who you are and whether you belong, um, it leads to a lot of disempowerment. Mm -hmm. Uh, it leads to people not participating in the political system and having all kinds of fears about it. Um, and yeah, this interior kind of doubt or fear anytime you're around any kind of law enforcement, you know. Uh, but that's where uh, we were talking about culture. The other thing we did have at the same time was a real deep sense of who we were because right. of the deep cultural immersion and traditions that we had. And so, um, yeah, that problem continues, and I think we have to think about whether we would allow this to happen to all Americans, to be constantly questioned about To be considered status. not innocent until proven guilty, right, almost. It's, right, right, yes, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, it's hard to know in those checkpoints. You don't have as many rights as, as you do in the interior of the U.S., but, and it's, you never know exactly what rights you have. Mm -hmm. And so they take advantage of that, and um, 
yeah, it's a life of, of, of questioning. Yeah. Especially when, when you talk about, you know, there's so much technology nowadays mm -hmm. that they uh, pretty much know who's coming in, who's coming out, but they still subject you to, you know, right. take, taking that, uh, claiming constantly, you know, whether you're a U.S. citizen, permanent resident. And Border Patrol agents, can, they can get your phone, right, right. And, and go through it and look at your contacts and what Photos. websites you've been visiting and uh, they have the, text messages. What tech, who you've been texting, they can find out what sources you've been communicating with. And that's become even more, I think, prevalent, you know, in the last two and a half years uh, with, uh, with this, uh, this administration, where almost like, um, I would say, you know, the agents, uh, the, the, the federal agents, I mean, they feel more, much more empowered to sort of invade your privacy, in mm -hmm. a sense. Um, related to that point, um, and this is a question for anyone on the panel who wants to, to, to jump in, one of the things that always strikes me about the security forces on the border, and especially about the Border Patrol, is that it is largely a Latino organization made up of, I mean, I think it's easily more than half of the workforce now. Mm -hmm. That creates some difficult, perhaps conflicted loyalties. Um, you know, I mean, they, these are people who may be arresting relatives of their neighbors or something like that in, in, in a lot of small towns. Um, Angela, what, what's it like dealing on a day-to-day -day basis with, with, with the Border Patrol and trying to get information out of them? Well, there's two, two things. First, there's the actual Border Patrol agents who are in the field. And, and to be honest, it is a very good federal job um, for people who would like to stay in their home communities. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's, it's well paid and people get to stay at home where a lot of people want to stay in a lot of these communities there aren't great jobs and there's a huge brain drain so so it's a great opportunity it does create some some you know issues um, but it's very common for people to have border patrol agents or customs and border protection um, officers in the, in their um, families or know someone in you know in the community mm -hmm. um, now getting information has become increasingly difficult from the actual official agencies uh, it's doled out in little bits and pieces and we cannot find out um, certain things that we need to know, like how much detention space, uh, why are people being forced to wait in Mexico if the numbers have gone down, um, they're camped out on, in border cities when we were told, you know, there aren't as many migrants coming, so there should be some space to allow people in to go through the asylum process. Um, I, I'll harken back to a story I did earlier this year. I mean, the Border Patrol agents were the first ones to sound the alarm about the horrible um, right. conditions inside these holding cells and so they are they point out look we are of the community we 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 were not said this is not what we signed up for we don't want to see these families in these conditions so it's it was it's, it was it's been a tough year for them too and i think it's really had an impact but but yeah it's very common to have lots of border patrols living in the community going to school parents family mm -hmm. friends so it's not yeah. unusual but i would say that you know like anything on the border i mean uh, nothing is really black and white Right. Uh, I mean, uh, I remember a few years ago, uh, I was working with an editor in Mexico City. Uh, see that we were doing a uh, a piece for the for the New Yorker, a series of stories on on uh, the conflicted loyalties of of agents. And I remember the orders from Mexico City was they must be conflicted. You know, they're they're Mexican Americans. Mm -hmm. They must uh, really feel for their compatriots, etc. Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, that really was uh, 
the point of the story that, uh, I mean, in a way, they, they feel more of a sense like you have to prove that you're an American, mm -hmm. that you are defending uh, the country. And I, I mean, you know, they're, they're patriots. I mean, Mexican-Americans are, are very patriotic, too. Um, there's questions about our loyalties, et cetera. But I mean, you know, they're, they're very patriotic. And I think that really kind of shook the beliefs in, in Mexico City. What, well, we were, we were so wrong about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Cecilia, another, I, I, I love Texas, I'm fascinated by Texas. Um, it's so different from New Mexico, where, where I'm from. And, uh, and the way that the border has been depicted in, in school, school books, in history books, that's evolved over, over time. Um, what, what, what's that been like, you know, coming from a background also, in addition to journalism, with a PhD and, and coming from academia. What's that been like to watch that evolution of the way that the border is, how the border is portrayed within Texas itself? Well, growing up, we were not told these stories about families like mine that had been there a long time. Uh, what happened in Texas was that the Texas Revolution was, the narrative about the war was, was rewritten in such a way that it was made into a racial war, right? When it was not a racial war, it was a war about what system of government people wanted to live under. But then when the story was told about the Texas Revolution, it was Mexican was the other, and it was dangerous, and it was something to, to be uh, contained. And Texas was Anglo, right? And so, um, we grew up not knowing this story, and I actually was a college student at the library at, at Stanford, sitting in a couch, trying to study. My first year was a rough adjustment, um, coming from a public school in Brownsville. And I look up, and there was a section of history books about Brownsville. And uh, wow. that's when I started learning my history, was actually in California. And then I ended up dedicating my undergrad studies and my PhD to unraveling and rewriting the story that my families were a part of mm -hmm. and trying to understand how Latinos and Mexican-Americans got washed out completely of the story of Texas, right? And I feel like I haven't moved on to any other subjects because it's, it's an unfinished project. Is there a sense that that's changing now, that there's a, you know, a debate over how school children should be learning about that is very slowly. So slowly. there's been there's been a fight for Mexican American studies curriculums to be uh, accepted by the Texas uh, State Board of Education, and in the Rio Grande Valley, in the in the McAllen area, they're starting to incorporate some of this history in the classroom, and I think that's a wonderful thing. I think there's this fear in this country by some people right now that if you have a strong identity, if you hang on to your culture, your history, that it's a threat to assimilation and it's a threat to the body politic of this country, right? And I think my experience has been that the more um, you know who you are and you're confident in who you are and it's okay to be who you are, the more empowered you are as an American citizen uh, and the more you can move between different spaces. And so I think that that is changing finally, but it's been yeah, a long fight mm -hmm. to get there. Yeah. Um, Alfredo, in, in one of your recent articles, you returned to the site of the shooting in, in, in El Paso, to that Walmart. Uh, tell us about that. What, what does it look like now, and what's the, what's the feeling at the, at the store and the surrounding area? 
Well, Walmart just uh, reopened about a week ago. Mm -hmm. In fact, a week ago. Uh, they, uh, right after the, the shooting, they, they made sort of like a makeshift memorial, uh, like an ofrenda, an, an altar to the, uh, the victims. I mean, there were tons of rosaries, flowers, uh, pictures uh, of, of other loved ones. And within 48 hours, I mean, it was all, it was all gone. Uh, much of it went back to the, the, the relatives uh, of, of the victims. Some of us moved to a nearby park, Ponder Park, uh, near, near the Walmart. Um, but I, I mean, one of the things that uh, El Paso did, like many other cities, when you go through a mass shooting, you know, Pittsburgh's strong, El Paso's strong, mm -hmm. et cetera. But in, in talking to people that day at Walmart, I mean, I don't think we've been able to really process things. We're still mm -hmm. processing. Uh, mm -hmm. I, and, and, and I don't think, you know, I don't think we're, we'll ever be the same again mm -hmm. as, as, uh, as the border resident as in El Paso. And, right. uh, I think it's, it's hit us so hard that we're still trying to, and especially as journalists, you know, we, we just kind of go on to the next story and the next story. And I don't think we've done the story justice. I mean, I think we, there's a lot more that we have to do to educate uh, both sides. I mean, Mexico yesterday, I think, uh, sued the government on behalf of, of 10 Mexican victims. Uh, there's 22 victims, eight of them were Mexicans. Mm -hmm. uh, I think 49 people were injured. Almost half of them were Mexicans. I mean, again, it tells you uh, about both sides. Uh, the, the shooting happened on my, on my father's 83rd birthday. Oh. So, it's when I think about that shoot, I mean, it's just all these raw emotions because if there's someone who really believes in the American dream, you know, it's my father. I mean, he, he brought us from Mexico. Uh, he wanted to give us a new life. And some to have someone from North Texas come to El Paso to target Mexicans. I mean, that... Uh, you know, a, a slap in the face of the city, mm -hmm. but I think to just about every any Mexican American who who believes in uh, in in sort of keeping that that dream alive, especially in these very divisive, polarized times yeah. in this country. If I can follow up on that, um, I was in El Paso a few weeks ago, maybe last month, and and trying to get a sense of what the massacre meant to people, and it was hard to to get one predominant sense, I think you're exactly right, that people are, are still processing how to make meaning of it. It's a very wounded city, I got that, and um, there's a lot of sadness. Um, but it, for me, we have missed the opportunity as a country and in Texas to have a deeper reflection about what it means to have uh, the worst crime against Latinos in modern times and to have a hate crime, a racist hate crime uh, that is targeting a different community. You know, in 2015, we had Dylan mm -hmm. Roof, who killed nine African Americans in Charleston, South Carolina. And I feel like he was a white supremacist, and I feel like we took more time as a country with that incident to reflect on what it meant that we were here as a country. We didn't do the same with the El Paso shooting, uh, I feel, or not enough. And one of the issues is going back to the point I made earlier, 
is that we have historically in Texas, and I think in the country, thought of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans as outsiders. And I just mentioned how you know, we were completely erased from our own story, from our own history. That happened in other parts of the Southwest as well. And so we're a community that's always seen perpetually as foreigners, as outsiders, and we don't have a way of understanding as a country our race problems around uh, Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, and Latinos. Um, we understand it as xenophobia, as anti-immigrant sentiments, but I feel like the conversation needs to go beyond that. Mm -hmm. it needs to go deeper. Yeah. How, how Angela, is, is it playing out politically on the border these days? How are people viewing, uh, you know, there was, a, there was, of course, one of the candidates who's dropped out of the race is, is Beto O'Rourke, and, and he spoke a lot about these issues, and, and you have Julian Castro, who was also talking a lot about these issues. Is, is there a sense that the border is, is included in, in the national political debate, or is there still a sense that it's neglected? How are, how are you seeing that? It's always included as kind of this flashpoint of crisis, whether it's humanitarian crisis or security crisis, mm -hmm. or this, you know, it's portrayed, obviously, we know in, in some campaigns as this dangerous no man's land overrun by criminals, which couldn't be further from the truth. Most uh, US border cities are among the safest in the country. But so there's a real concern um, border residents uh, their, their issues, and they care about a lot of this. Yes, they care about borders, you know, being a safe place. Everybody does, but they also care about health care. They also care about job creation. They also care about, you know, education is critical. And so people are, are tired of only being, you know, and, and constantly being asked about the wall. As Cecilia mm -hmm. said, the wall, um, I mean, we have a wall along big stretches of border. It's there. People have various views about it. Most people on the border who've been polled say they don't think it's, uh, they're against the wall because it's some terrible thing, but it's not an effective tool. People go over it, under it, around it. <laughs> and so they, they, they would like to see a more sophisticated look at, at what um, both the border uh, security issues, but more than that, the issues that matter to border residents. Some of these communities have very serious um, issues with poverty and, and other things that need to be addressed. The real concern is, are we going to finally see voter turnout in these largely Latino um, regions of the border? Will people turn out? What will it take for people to turn out? You know, when Beto O'Rourke ran, um, he, he, he was able, as, as a candidate, um, he did not win that election, um, against Ted Cruz to, to motivate large numbers of people in El Paso right. formally and young people to finally go to the polls. We'll have to see what happens if people will be motivated if they think these candidates are actually speaking to them of either party. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if I can add, I mean, um, I, I know the topic tonight is what can the rest of the country learn from the border, mm -hmm. but I think the border can also learn a lot from California <laughs> and, and, and 187. And having you know, lived in California, uh, still have a big family here. That's one of the things that played in my mind is right after the shooting, was, you know, will this finally motivate people to participate, to come out and vote, whether it's Democrat, whether it's Republican, whatever, but really, you know, make themselves uh, counted and, and say this matters. And, and I mean, the ultimate uh, test is show up at the polls. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, yes, Beto did motivate a lot of people to, to vote, but I hope this trend continues and that, uh, that El Pasoans and people all along the border, you know, can finally come out, turn out and say, we're not a piñata. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really matter. 
And, right. and, and this is, we don't want Washington or some other city to write our narrative. We want to write our own border story and, and, and define who we are. Mm -hmm. And a piñata that's bashed for political points. Right. Yeah. right, right. And it does work, that's why they keep doing it. It does work, yeah. What, what, one of the things that I've been most impressed by uh, in my reporting trips to the border is uh, just the, the a, a place like Annunciation House, which is an incredible organization in El Paso uh, that, that assists uh, refugees and asylum seekers and migrant families in, in, many, in many different ways, and how there's been sort of an organic growth of, of real activism um, among border residents, right, to kind of solve these issues on their own because, because they know that, you know, the federal or state or city governments are not going to solve these things for them. So they really stepped in, you know, in, into that role. Um, you know, is, is that something that the rest of the country can look at maybe and sort of see that, you know, hey, that there's a real sense of solidarity and social cohesion on the border that, that is overlooked? Cecilia, what do you, how do you see that happening? I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're coming from Houston also, which has a, <coughs> you know, Sorry. a different dynamic. Yes, um, I think what you say about social cohesion, I really, I really like that. I, I do think that what, what the border has going for it is um, a strong sense of family, a strong sense of community. Um, I apologize, I'm about to call. Strong cough. sense of faith. A lot of the groups that were intervening. That's like right. And it. interfaith, yeah. right? Interfaith. <laughs> I mean, groups working together, which is really, you know, different, yeah. So in this, these, back to these interviews that I've been doing, one-on-one -on -one in depth interviews with voters and non-voters, um, people are not participating in the political process, but they're deeply engaged in their communities. It's not a lack of agency. It's not a lack of... Uh, a sense that they can make a difference in their own lives, but they're doing it in these ways, and historically the border has, has, to, has had to do that for itself. Yeah. So um, I do think that that's something that the rest of the country could learn from. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I, I, you know, Annunciation House, Las Americas, I mean, I think one of the stories that we miss as journalists is the impact that's had in the, on the rest of the country. I mean, when you have mm -hmm. volunteers coming in from Wyoming, mm -hmm. uh, from Montana, I mean, from different parts of the country who will say, I, I want to spend a week, I want to spend a month, an Annunciation House right. and, and help out. I mean, that's, that's a pretty hopeful story for, for, for the country. I mean, it's not... We don't seem to tell that story. Right, I mean, it's not, know, it's not just gloom yeah. and doom. Uh, yeah. there, there are pockets that say, you know, uh, people actually care. They, they, they really give a damn. I mean, we're, we're not alone. Well, all this attention on the border has brought so many groups from all over the country down to actually experience it firsthand and see it. So that's been a positive. And I would also say um, people can learn from the board, especially volunteering in place like an Annunciation House. I mean, as Americans, we crossing borders is in our DNA. And we, on the border, we see it every day. We don't have to be reminded that this is a country of immigrants. So I think that we understand that we can remind the rest of the country. And when people come down and see, you know, some of the poorest communities kind of Mm -hmm. reaching out and doing what they can on both sides of the border. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just at these migrant tent cities where Mexican asylum seekers are stuck, and they're getting donations from people in Juarez who do know and do remember because they once were the people arriving at the border looking for a wow. new opportunity. Wow. There's an organization in Houston that did a study of public schools in the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, mm -hmm. and they found that these schools that, uh, with very high levels of poverty were outperforming 
other public schools in the state, and they didn't know how to explain that, and so they started doing some qualitative research around that and found that it was these other intangibles that actually uh, led to higher performance than you would expect in these communities, and things like the investment of the whole community in the school, the yeah. parents knowing each other, and so I do think there, there are other uh, gains that are hard to quantify and to see from a distance when mm -hmm. we're just focusing on the politics of it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think we're ready for questions. So. Hello, my name is Shawnee Moore. I am a lawyer and screenwriter. Thank you for this, this was wonderful. My question is, is there a cultural practice that you've seen present on the Mexican side of the border that you wish were present in the United States? And vice versa, is there a cultural practice in the United States that you wish were present in Mexico? I think more humility on, on the U.S. side of the border <laughs> would, would go a long way. Uh, and I think uh, uh, respect for uh, rule of law on, on the Mexican side. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that would uh, empower both communities even more. Buenas noches. Thank you for um, creating the sacred space. Buenas noches. Um, you mentioned about settlement. You mentioned about checkpoints, uh, kids being in detention. And I cannot stop and think about Palestinian children um, being locked up in Israeli jails. Um, I can, so the connection about is Palestinian children being locked up and our children being locked up in cages, the checkpoints that Palestinians have to go through, the checkpoints that people in the border regions go through, the um, security. So there's a lot of connections that Israel technology has done to the detention centers and whatnot. Has there been any studies or correlations that you guys have been able to do an investigative reporting to make that connection? Because the Mexicanos are the Palestinians in the United States and the Palestinian children are the Mexicans in Israel. So there's that connection. And it's oftentimes the saddest part that we don't make those connections. So it's like, tenemos que tener esa más conexión. And so um, I have this Palestinian bracelet on because we cannot talk about being in solidarity with our brothers and sisters and ignore their struggles. So they're ever present and we have to keep them present in our lives. Thank you. Yeah, the connection is how there's been um, mm -hmm. Um, studies that connects that. Yeah. yeah, I don't know of any, and I think we should be having that exchange, and we should take border journalists there and have journalists from there come here. Um, I did have a graduate student when I was teaching at the University of Texas at Austin who was came to me because she was doing work in Palestine and felt that there were a lot of correlations. I think traditionally we've thought of, of the two borders and the conflicts as being fairly different. And uh, one thing uh, about the border here that's complex is that we've always been trying to open it and close it at the same time. And uh, there's less talk of that under the current administration, but the previous precedents were always talking about how to uh, minimize the amount of time or uh, waiting on the border, how to get more tractor trailers to be able to come through, and at the same time, how to stop more of the goods that are illicit, right? And so it's a, very, it's a very specific kind of border here. But I think as the enforcement has increased, we're seeing some of the same companies that invest in both places or that um, are behind the technology that's being used. So I think it's a very good conversation that we're not having and that we should have. My name is Edward Lee. I grew up here in Los Angeles, but for the past two decades or so, I've been living in Bisbee, Arizona. 
which is approximately 20 minutes from the border with Sonora uh, on the other side. Uh, you're correct in saying that uh, a lot of the residents there have been really involved in interfaith groups and to try to stem the, the deaths, the humanitarian crisis of people crossing the border unprepared. Because the fact is that a lot of the people who are coming across the border try to make uh, lives here in the United States are actually very much like people from Los Angeles. They're city folks. And they're going into these desert wilderness areas with open-toed shoes and have no idea. They're being lied to that the light's just over there. That's Tucson. That's Phoenix. So every year, there's so many people who are dying out there in the desert out of ignorance. And a lot of what we do is, uh, it, for example, in uh, No Mas Muertes, uh, No More Deaths, mm -hmm. is to place food, caches of water on this side for people who are desperate. But also, we go over to the other side. Uh, I wanted to know uh, how many people are actually aware of the continuing deaths, because it's no longer being covered. And um, Scott Warren recently, just two days ago, was vindicated, uh, basically, for uh, doing this kind of work, while our administration is going full bore trying to pro prosecute. I don't think that many people are aware of uh, the, the civil society groups, the NGOs that do that kind of work along the border. The, the border. And Scott Warren's you know, acquittal, I think, was, was pretty amazing this week. Um, what is interesting, though, and one of the most fascinating stories I've done was, was here in California about a group called Aguilas del Desierto. Mm -hmm. and they're, they're based largely out of San Diego. And what they do, they're, they're, they're comprised entirely of immigrants themselves. These are people who have day jobs. And what they do, they go out into the desert each weekend, and they make it their mission to try to find the remains of people who perished during the crossing to give the family members some, some kind of closure, just to know that that is their relative to identify those, those bones. And it's very difficult work to do. And they go out, I mean, on their free time and do this. So it, it's just an incredible organization. I think an example also of, of immigrants who no one else is going to do it, and, and they're doing it. I think that that's a really, a really impressive and a very difficult thing to do. And there's similar groups up and down the border. Um, and we have seen deaths, obviously Arizona is the main place, but in, in, in the brush in Texas. And then uh, children dying um, in remote areas of New Mexico after they cross the border. So this is a, an ongoing concern. And, and we do rely on these humanitarian organizations to try and provide help. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, you re, uh, really appreciate uh, you coming out. Um, so earlier, um, I think one of the journalists brought up um, Proposition 187 here in California that happened in 94 and in the context of um, kind of a political awakening. And uh, I was wondering if uh, the panel can maybe elaborate on what was it about that that really kind of rejuvenated or kind of, uh, kind of galvanized Latinos here in California to vote but hasn't manifested on the border? Like what's the difference like, well, you know, in, in, from your perspective? I think the difference is that we, it hasn't inspired enough people to go out and register to vote and actually vote. And 187, I mean, it was, it was seen as an anti-immigrant measure. Uh, what happened in El Paso was, uh, was an act of hatred uh, directed at, at immigrants. And I'm hopeful that, uh, that it will 
really get people across the border, but you know, in, in the general Latino population to, to, to register, to vote, to, to participate. Uh, well, I mean, we'll see, 2020 is just around the corner. I think, if I can add something to that, uh, I, I cover Arizona a lot, and Arizona went through its kind of own Proposition 187 moment with, with SB 1070. The reactions to it were somewhat different in that uh, it was the pressure to weaken that legislation came largely from the business community, um, although there also was like a huge outburst of, of, uh, of, of or activism and organizing. Um, but Arizona's very different from California demographically in that they've had so much migration from other parts of the United States. So for, especially from the Midwest, the Rust Belt, people moving there and bringing their politics, often their conservative politics, with them. Um, although I think it's in the cards that Arizona is, is going to shift as well. And it's, it's already looking very purple, the way that its congressional delegation is already made up. So you see changes taking place, just not as quickly, just, and it's in a different way that they happen in California. And it's that next generation. When I was there um, teaching for a couple of years, it was the younger US citizen, yeah. children of, of migrants who are now playing a key role in registering and organizing. For those of, well, myself, maybe geographically challenged. How many towns, cities, miles, states are we covering, like life on the border, um, what state to what state and things like that? Just a geographical uh, um, size. About 2,000 miles, uh, four, four states on, on the U.S. side and six states on the Mexican side. Um, I mean, uh, Coahuila, uh, Tamaulipas, Nuevo León, Chihuahua, uh, Sonora, Baja California, that's on the Mexican side. Uh, California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Texas is, takes about about a thousand <laughs> miles of that two thousand mile border. Texas is half about of half, yeah. about half, yeah, yeah. If you go down to South Texas, uh, within a two hour drive, you'll pass fourteen different uh, crossing points into the United States. It's a lot of towns all along, hugging the Rio Grande River on either side, uh, and some of those towns go way back, like I said, to the 1700s, and so that area has been a continuously inhabited uh, place where you're just going from town to town with tons of crossing points. Yeah. And the, the big cities and rural little towns, there's a variety of, of different types of communities. And historic trails, like the Paso del Norte, the Camino Real, the, the Pass of the North, that cuts through El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. Um, well, we'll close our program there, and thank you so much for joining us, all of you, but please do join us for the reception right here, right now. Before we close, um, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, thank you again for coming, and please give a huge round of applause to our featured guests. Thank you. Thank you.